Okay, we've started a new series through the book of 1 Samuel, and today we find ourselves in chapter 2. I'm aiming to cover about a chapter a week, and I'm encouraging everyone to read the chapter ahead of time in advance of Sunday. You don't have to try and mine it for deep insights, but just familiarize yourself with it, because sometimes we're going to be kind of moving over sections of it quickly. We also have Bibles at the back, NIV Bibles. You can pull it up on your phone. There's sermon notes that has the text that we're going to be looking at. And I'm really encouraging you, whatever your normal mode of engagement is on Sunday morning, to just turn it up a little bit, take some notes. Even if it's a blank piece of paper, you're going to write down one thing that God just impresses on your heart. The more intentionality we can bring to our engagement, not just on Sunday, but whenever we're engaging God's Word or praying, um, I think God honors that. So let's be pursuing God and not just sort of um, sitting back and, and waiting for something to fall into our laps. Let's pursue God during this Advent. 1 Samuel chapter 2 begins with Hannah celebrating what God has done. She's brought Samuel to the temple at Shiloh, and she sings this long prayer slash song, depending. I think think it's kind of like both. It's a song from her heart. It's also a a prayer of praise. And the first verse sets the tone for the whole thing. She says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And probably the part that is the most grindingly, like, what? Is the part where she talks about, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. That's probably not an expression you use too often. The concept, though, it's it's a, a Hebrew idiom that refers to an animal who is victorious in victory, like a ram, and the ram lifts its horn as a sign of power and strength and victory. So we might, we might kind of like fist pump, like when you're like, yeah, like that, like when you're pumping fists like that in an um, athletic event or something like that, cheering from the sidelines. That's like, yes, like God, we're, we're winning, we've won, we've done it. It's a posture of victory. But it's also connected, interestingly, to sacrifice. If we look at this next picture, this is a lifelike uh, recreation of the tabernacle before there was a temple, and this is the tabernacle at Shiloh. And you can see in the um, altar where the sacrifice was burned, there are these hooks on the end, and they were referred to as the horns on the altar. And so to raise, for God to raise up a horn of victory means something, something indicating victory and strength and power is happening, but it's happening through A sacrifice. And that makes sense for Hannah's story, right? Because her victory is that she's been delivered from barrenness. And she's been gifted with a son. But what's her sacrifice? Her son, right? She gives her son back to God. And so it's this beautiful um, mingling of these themes of victory and sacrifice together. Hannah celebrates for the rest of the song who God is, what he's done, what she sees him doing, not just in her life, but what she takes that to mean about what he's going to do for all of Israel. And in verse 4, she says, um, it speaks to this upheaval, this reversal, where the corrupt in power are going to be brought low, the righteous who are oppressed are going to be exalted. She says, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled along in life, they're armed with strength. God lifts them up. Those who were full are now hiring themselves out for food, but those who were hungry aren't hungry any longer. And she who is barren has borne seven children, 
right? The Hebrew number seven means fullness, completeness, perfection. But she who has had many sons pines away. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. And this is a theme we've already seen in Scripture and one that will continue to come up again and again as you move through the story leading towards Jesus and then the establishment of the church. That God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the very people that the world would look at and say, scoff at, disregard, mistreat, God says those are going to be the most important vehicles of my grace. That's how I'm going to set the world right side up. And this was really radically opposed to any religious conception at the time because in all of Israel's neighboring um, tribes and nations, the gods they worship exalted the strong and the dominant and those who could force their will over other people. And here is Israel's God and Hannah celebrating the fact that the true and living God isn't like that. He gives strength to the weak and the weary. And that which the world discards and says useless, worthless, purposeless, God says they're going to become foundational and a cornerstone in what I'm doing in the world. It's amazing. Her song ends with these words in verse 9. He, God, will guard the feet of his saints but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. Did you guys catch that? Remember in verse 1, when Penina thundered Hannah to get her riled up? Hannah's like, you know what's so great about God? I don't need to, I don't need to try and get back at Penina. God will thunder her for me. Vengeance is God. I don't, I don't have to retaliate but God will thunder against the wicked from heaven. He will bring a storm against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the, the horn of his anointed. A little kind of prophecy there. There's no king in Israel at this time. There's no sort of plans to on one level, but she says God's going to exalt the king. Verse 11, then Elkanah, so they were home for worship. This is kind of like the dropping off of Samuel. Then the whole family goes back home and it says, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Let's just pause there because I want to make sure that we hear and are reminded of this principle that cuts across every Christian's life. And that is, when God gives you a gift, make sure that you return it to him. When God gives you a gift, return it to him. Now, that's easier said than done. And probably if I asked you, and if you asked me, I, I would say, oh, I'd totally want to be generous with the, the blessing and the gift of time and talents and energy and finances and wealth and opportunity that I have. But then when we get those and when they expand, I find the temptation to hoard them sort of begins to find purchase in my heart. I, I don't know if any of you can relate to that, but that's, I, I, it feels like, yeah, I mean, I'll still... Yeah, I'd be generous, generous-ish, but like, ooh, I've got more and more things that I need to do, I need to be a part of, that I need to focus on establishing sort of like my life. And, um, you know, it's amazing to me if you actually think about Hannah in the last chapter, 
saying, I'm going to give up Samuel, but there's a huge delay of years while she nurtures and weans him. It's amazing to me that she doesn't go the way of Bilbo Baggins. We're, we're, we're doing like the Lord of the Rings thing in our home and we're halfway through The Hobbit right now. Remember when, when Gandalf and Bilbo have the discussion and Bilbo's like, I need to set off. And Gandalf's like, okay, just leave the ring. And Bilbo's like, yep, no problem. And then he's like, oh, Bilbo, the ring's still in your pocket. And Bilbo's like, oh, yeah. But then he has a moment. And he says, but it's mine. Why shouldn't I keep it? How did Hannah not go there? The thing she wanted most, she has. And she's been able to nurture it. And see Samuel grow. And now the day comes to bring him to the temple and drop him off. That is an amazing. You really got to um, inhabit that story. Because it's such a great microcosm of the Christian life. God gives us thing, and there may be a season where we incubate our talents, our treasures. There's, there's a certain amount of development, but it's always meant to be brought back to God. And even if we don't know exactly how to do that, we at least start with God. Everything that I have is yours. The breath, the time, talent, and treasures, it's all yours. Will you show me how to use it for you and not get sucked into, actually, it's mine. Why shouldn't I keep it? Why shouldn't I leverage all this to make my life better? Because I could see how I could do that. That act of surrender has to be something that's continually a part of my life as a disciple of Jesus. So if God has given you time and talent and treasure and energy and skills and opportunities, even if you kind of think, well, I don't know how God could do anything with this or... It's kind of meager. That's not the point. The point is you give that gift back to God and look for ways to do that. Now, in this next section, verses 12 to 26, we read about Eli's wicked sons, or in the NIV, it calls them scoundrels, but not like in a Han Solo scoundrel way, like, oh, you little rapscallion. Like, actually, like, wicked. And we'll talk about that in a second. But we've heard about Hophni and Phinehas in the first chapter, and that was sort of a foreboding allusion to where we are in Israel's story. And now we understand a bigger picture of just how dark the situation is in Israel. Verse 12 says, Eli's sons were scoundrels or wicked. And actually, the literal translation is sons of Belial which is an alternate name for Satan, and it's connected to lawlessness. So if you think of those who walk God's ways, walk according to God's laws and his statutes and his commands, these are men who are priests who are walking in a literal antichrist direction. So they're priests in title only. They're wicked. Now what's um, another illusion that we don't catch probably in the English, going back to verse 1. Remember when um, Eli rebukes Hannah because he thinks she's drunk and he calls her a wicked woman? He called her a daughter of Belial in the Hebrew. Now, that means that Eli, who is big head honcho priest, things are so spiritually messed up in Israel right now that a priest looking at a woman who's genuinely pouring her heart out to God and praying, he mistakes that for her being drunk and then labels her a daughter of Satan. 
So that shows you how out of touch, how disconnected, and in a sense, not even disconnected, how in the other direction, both Eli and his family and the priesthood in Israel is at this time. They can't tell the difference between someone who's pouring their heart out to God in prayer and who is just drunk and up to no good. But it's Eli and his sons who are the scoundrels. In verse 13, it says, Now the practice of the priests, referring to Hophni and Phinehas, so this is what they were doing. Now this part is a little weird, but just track with it, and it'll all make sense in a moment. Their practice was whenever someone came to offer a sacrifice, which was animals, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or pot or whatever, and whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned off the animals, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept the boiled meat from you, only, only raw. And if the person said to him, well, like, let's let the fat be burned first, and then you can take whatever you want, the servant would say, no. You hand it over now, If you don't, I will take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So here's another part of the story that, like the raising of the horn, we're like coming in, scooping up food with a fork, and God's like, whoa, this is ridiculous. It's like, what what is going on here? Here's what's going on. Worshippers understood that the fat of the sacrifice belonged to God. That was burned off first. God gets the best portion of the meat. And they also knew that Leviticus taught that there were already certain parts of the animal, not the best, not the worst, just kind of middle ground, that the priests got to eat. That was their accommodation. That's what kept them alive. That was their adequate provision. But these priests were saying, we'll take the best. We'll give the leftovers to God. And protest was useless because they had a network of people who could leverage bullying against people. And again, there's no like uh, judicial system outside of the priests at this time. No no one can appeal to a higher authority. The priests are the high authority. So what they say goes. And if they're not doing something right and they say, you better shut your mouth or I will bring, I'll make your life miserable. They could. And you didn't really have any recourse. So a lot of righteous people in Israel were cornered while this corrupt priesthood just kind of did whatever they wanted. And then In verse 22, we read that Eli says, I've even heard reports that you're sleeping with some of the women who help prepare things for worship. And there's nothing in this text, no commentary ever will will try and make the argument that that this was consensual. This was these priests leveraging their power to exploit and abuse and harass people economically, spiritually, sexually. This was a deeply, deeply toxic, abusive setup. And so when we're reading about the barrenness of Israel at this time, this time of judges, there's no king in the land, everybody is doing right what seems, or everyone's doing what seems right in his own eyes, this chapter really, in an uncomfortable way, discloses just how deep that darkness is. It's not even that society is going to, you know where, in a handbasket, but 
the religious leadership who are supposed to represent God, they're actually facilitating the most amount of abuse. So it's not just barrenness, like, well, God seems distant and we're just kind of apathetic in our faith. It's actually active corruption, exploitation, abuse from leadership. But Samuel, verse 18, was ministering before the Lord. And we read about how his mother would come every year as part of the worship. And it says that she'd make him a little robe as he grew, a new one. And then God blesses her, and she has more children. And so there's this juxtaposition of there's this corruption, but God has placed a light in the temple, and that light is Samuel. And it's very small at first. He's just a little kid helping out. But God is building and doing something in his life. Now Eli, verse 22, was very old, and he heard what his sons were doing, and he says, why do you do such things? I hear from the people that there's wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear among the Lord's people is not good. If anyone sins against the Lord, God may mediate for the offender. But what if you sin against the Lord? Who will intercede for you? His sons, however, didn't listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And, or but, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. So there's this comparison, right? Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, continue to grow in wickedness and corruption and exploitation and abuse. Samuel keeps growing up in wisdom and in the favor of God and the favor of the people. People over time say, this leadership structure that we have is so, is so anti-God. But if we can have someone in charge like Samuel, ooh, that would, like that's what leadership looks like. Even at a young age, they could see the hope that was there. Now I want to stop here for a second because stories like this really bothered me. Sorry, they really bother me, not past tense. In chapter 1, we met Padina, and we talked about how there are few wounds deeper than someone who professes to love God over here, and then over here thunders up people, bullies them, twists the knife, rubs salt in the wound. It's just cruel and malicious. But there is something worse than that, and that is abuse and mistreatment that comes at the hands of leaders who are supposed to represent God's grace and power and God's character in the lives of people. A leader is called by God in the Old Testament and the New. It's a recurring theme to be not just a shepherd, not just keep thinking, but a good shepherd. A good shepherd who's so good that you'd be willing to lay your life down for your sheep. And what we see in the Old Testament and in some cases in the New Testament, is people who said, I want to be in charge, I want to be the leader, I want to be the shepherd, and I want other people to lay down their life so that I can flourish, so that my life's better. You're there to serve me. And that's never God's desire for leaders. And God, I think really honestly, is ticked at leaders who minister in his name, but use their leverages of power, whatever they are, to exploit and abuse and mistreat people. Eli's sons are greedy and they're using their position and their connections to their dad because they're like, dad's not gonna fire us, let's be honest. Oh, sorry, dad, you shouldn't do this. Okay, you're right, Pfft, whatever, keep, keep on keeping on. We got it good, we're, we're super connected. 
And they're using all of that power and influence to make their life better, to gratify their own desires. And the Bible speaks very strongly to leaders who profess to be shepherds but act like wolves. And instead of protecting people and creating a culture that is built on safety and respect and, and protection is one where people are walking on eggshells because they see mistreatment and abuse. Eli confronts his sons, but as we're about to read, his rebuke amounts to little more than a slap on the wrist because he's more than happy to reap all the benefits of his son's sort of <laughs> abusive and exploitive gambit. I don't like what you're doing. You shouldn't do it. But, oh, man, I love this filet mignon. This is good stuff. This is way better than the ram shoulder. I'll tell you that. Shouldn't do it. Not the ideal. Prefer if you didn't. But can't argue with this sweet, fat bank account. Eli's perfectly content to personally benefit from his son's abuse. He's got a lot to lose if he ousts Hophni and Phinehas, reputationally, logistically, on lots of levels. And what's heartbreaking and maddening for me is I'm ashamed at the number of times this script plays out in churches. People in power, whether they're pastors or other leaders or prominent people in a community, they mistreat others, they conduct themselves in a way that is consistently destructive, abusive, explo exploitative, anti-Christ, and they're met with little more than a slap on the wrist. Leaders must be held to a higher standard. If you are uncomfortable for, with that and you are a leader, you should move out of leadership. You are absolutely, I am absolutely held to a higher standard as a leader. And any manifestation of an abuse of power in the name of Jesus is demonic, it is vile, and it should be given absolutely no quarter within churches. Every church should be ready to bring appropriate accountability to bear on anyone in the church who is actively and intentionally mistreating others, but doubly so if that person is in leadership formal or otherwise. Leaders set the tone for the culture of any given group, and they're not perfect. But they are called to be above reproach. A clear example of someone who is maturing and growing, and growing into being a better and better good shepherd. They use their authority and their power to support and help people, not to extract things from people. Yes, leaders are going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. There's no, no one that I know in, in ministry that I rub shoulders with, that talk with, that would say, I don't make mistakes. Leaders are humble. They're broken. They're healing. They're following Jesus. They're learning. But those mistakes should be relatively minor in their impact. They should be course corrections. And if and when they are significant, then serious accountability should be brought to bear on them. And that recourse may and often should include reporting to the police, firing from the position. Abuse, bullying, sexualized interactions with others within the church, no matter how that manifests, should be met with serious and swift intervention. Do you agree?
I'm asking you that question because you might not if the time ever comes. Like you might agree in principle, but when the time comes, you might shrink back from confronting someone in the church, especially if it's your pastor. And I know that because I see it happen in churches all the time. One of the dangers of being a small church is that there's a network of connections that gets established. And a leader's life, a pastor's life, and the impact of people is significant. It's very personal. Especially if the pastor has shepherded and led for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Pastors invest years and decades into a church and a lot of good things occur as a result. And then a yellow flag is raised, a red flag is raised, and it can become very tempting to look the other way or to minimize how serious the leader's sin is. And I want this to be really clear because there may come a time when serious accountability might be in order for me or in a future pastor that you have. If that time comes... I want you to take action. I, I really honestly do. I want you to take action. There will be a temptation to extend an inappropriate amount of grace and minimize the need for accountability. <sighs> do we really want to bring this up with Jeff? I don't know. Like... We're kind of in a good season. A lot of good things are happening. This is a mistake. Maybe someone can kind of say, like, yeah, this is not ideal. Maybe a one-on-one conversation. I mean, I know it's serious, but, like, ah, like, I remember when Jeff was there for me at this time in my life, and I, I know his heart, and he loves God, and no one's perfect, and who are we to judge? And that's what will happen for many of you. And if I'm confronted, or if any leader in this church is confronted, but let's just localize it on the pastor. If I'm confronted and I don't change course, I don't humble myself and get the appropriate accountability at whatever scale the thing is, then you should fire me. You should fire me. Regardless of how many years of service, regardless of the personal impact, regardless of how you're concerned it's going to be seen by people in the community who don't have all the information, none of that should eclipse someone's abusing power and isn't taking appropriate accountability, done. And even for some of us, you hear that and you're like, but what about grace? Like, and yeah, I'm not saying be like a, you know, have the posture of church police that are just hunting for the most minor issues with your leaders or with your pastor. I'm talking about in situations where there's real damage and abuse. And the grace in that situation is that you're holding them to account. And that maybe, yes, you look at it and say, well, their family, what are they going to do with that? Or job, blah, blah. And the grace is you pray for them and you help them and you don't like kick them to the curb, maybe, depending on the nature of the offense. But there are certain things that mean leadership is off the table for me forever. Not involvement in the church, maybe. Maybe not um, serving in some way, but leadership off the table forever. And I think that's the way it should be. God has a high standard for leaders, not perfection. But there can't be any hint of abuse of power, ongoing, malicious, self-serving abuse and mistreatment of people under a pastor's care. 
whether that's verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse, relational abuse. And then in these next few verses, we see the consequences that God meets out to Eli's sons because of this. Like God takes it seriously. God sends a man of God, a prophet of some kind, to Eli, confronts him, and basically says, Eli, God's promise was with you, and I'm speaking for God, and I'm letting you know that um, because of your inaction towards your sons, in between, in act, allowing this corruption and this rot to happen within the priesthood, you have a whole army of wolves when you should have shepherds. I'm removing my blessing on you and your whole household and your whole line. He says in verse 30, Therefore the God of Israel says, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. <laughs> you can forget that. Those who honor me, I will honor. But if you despise me, you will be disdained. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a heavy, hard thing to hear. I promised you this. Yeah, you've nullified that. I'm, I'm revoking that promise. You're not entitled to that promise anymore. Leadership is not an entitlement. God's blessing and favor is not an entitlement. You just get to do whatever you want. Be like, oh, we're, yeah, at this point, we're God's people. We're in the priesthood. Like, I'm a professional priest. I can do whatever I want. I'm on God's team. God's like, that makes me sick to my stomach. You're out. And God says, this is going to be assigned to you in verse 34 to Eli. Both of your sons are going to die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow before them for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and they will plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Verse 33, if we go back, it says, um, he ends it by saying, all of your descendants will die in the prime of their life. This is a heavy, heavy judgment on Eli and his household. But it shows us how seriously God takes the calling of leadership and especially formal leadership of his people. For us, that means pastors. And when I think about this section, you know, I mean, obviously, the one thing that I would say is holiness and maturity matters for you as a Christian. Like there are some people who, who think, okay, God loves me if I continue to be perfect and, and don't do bad things and, and they live from a place of fear and they live from a place of holiness and maturity is what gets me into God's good books and so I live with this fear that if, if I don't measure up, God's gonna kick me out but holiness and fear comes from knowing that you are God's You've been redeemed and forgiven. You are part of the family of God. And yeah, now God has expectations for you moving forward. You're on the volleyball team. You're a part of this art class. You're a part of this new family. And that means this is how we do things. Well, I just want to do art however I want and who cares how it affects other people. No. And if you're going to participate like that, you're not going to be able to participate. This is the way we do things in God's family. And holiness and maturity matters. Not because God will love us more, but God can't bless our disobedience. And there's a lot of Christians who aren't taking their personal walk with God seriously, living however they want, and they're like, why is there, <laughs> why am I not sort of experiencing, 
I know it's not mechanical, like a one-for-one one thing, but I just don't really feel like I'm in the flow of God's blessing and favor. I don't get it. And it's like, well, are you taking holiness and obedience and trying to understand what God wants and trying to live that out, even imperfectly? Are you trying to do that? I had a conversation this week with someone who was like, you know, in the last little bit, I've tried to be more intentional with God. And like these three things fell into place. And they're like, I don't know, is that weird to think like that's God like rewarding me or blessing me? And I'm like, no, of course. Of course there's going to be a correlation between a God who sees his child striving to please him and to do good. Of course God's going to want to facilitate that. And of course if he is a child that is like Hophni and Phineas saying like, whatever, I'll do whatever I want. God will still forgive me. God's gracious. I don't need to worry about it. How could God bless that? How could God accelerate and build momentum in that? He's not going to. Your holiness and your maturity matters. Your walk with God matters. There are consequences for persistent disobedience at every age, at every stage of life, whatever that looks like. And there's more at stake that we may realize. I don't know how much you want to read into it, but I'm haunted a little bit by this passage where God says, I promised, but now no. I wanted to open up this opportunity for you, and I was willing to, Again, I'm not kicking you out of my family, but that opportunity, that, that, is, that door's closing. And it will never be open again. That kind of scares me straight a little bit to realize God, like my life and my walk matters to God. I need to take it seriously. So as you can see, there's a lot in this chapter. But I want to return to a question Eli asks to close. because It's really, really important. Remember when he's confronting his sons, even if it's kind of like half-hearted, and he says, guys, this is what you're doing isn't good. He says, if a man sins against God, or sorry, if, if, um, if a man sins against another man, then God could mediate for him because there's a higher authority. But if you sin against God, who's going to intercede for you? Like, if you're, if you're in a fight with this person, like, oh, yeah, God can be the referee. But if your fight is with God, Who's, who's, who's refereeing that bout? Who will intercede for you? Eli is saying, especially when your sin isn't against a person, but it's against God himself. Who has the power and the authority and the spiritual leverage and the right to intercede on your behalf? Well, this is where you go back to Hannah's prayer. And look at the song, because the bookend of the song deals with horns being exalted. First she says, in the Lord, my horn is exalted. And then she says that the horn of God's anointed king will be, exhausted, will be exalted. This is the first time in all of the Bible so far in the story that the word anointed and king has come together. It's the first time. And remember that the horns speak to both victory and sacrifice. Let's pull all those threads together. Let's do it. This is where you get to the crescendo. If a man sins against another man, God could intervene. But what if God's beef was with you? You had offended God, and God had the right to judge and condemn you. Who could intercede then? It would have to be a king, someone with grand authority. It would have to be an anointed king. And it would have to be a king who has secured a victory that has come through a sacrifice. All of those threads have to be held together. And there's only one person in all of human history who holds all of those threads together. And that is Jesus. 
the anointed king who secures victory for his people through his own sacrifice on a cross where he is exalted, he's lifted up as a symbol of both suffering and victory. That's why in 1 Timothy 2.5, Timothy says, there's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and man and this is the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And some of you will know this, but just to make sure you, you hear it, when Jesus dies, he's crucified at noon, he's on the cross for three hours, he gives up his last breath at 3 p.m. At 3 p.m. is when sacrificial lambs are killed uh, as part of the Passover celebration. And does anyone know what instrument is played when the, ram, uh, when the lamb is sacrificed? A shofar. And a shofar is a ram's horn. And so when the shofar blows, the anointed king gives a sacrifice of himself so there can be victory. And that's why Jesus says, it's finished. And what that means is, even if you're sitting here or you're listening to this and you're like, there's no hope for me because when I look at my life, I, I'm like a Hophni and Phineas. God has no right to, to love and accept me. I have no right to God's favor or blessing or eternal life. But there is someone who intercedes for you and someone who actually can and who can take the punishment that you deserve upon himself and give you the favor and blessing that he deserved and gift it to you. And that means there can be forgiveness and restoration and a new life for the Hophni and the, and the Phineases of the world, for the Elis of this world, for you and I, people who are stubborn and foolish and dumb and loveless and lifeless and sinful and selfish and lame and blind. But it can only be secured through a victorious, anointed king, King Jesus, who secures the victory not by destroying his enemies, but by dying for them. Let's pray.